Well, I'd like to start this morning with a brief recap of where we've been so far in the book of Genesis. Uh, And if you're guessing, don't worry, we've only gotten through chapter 3. In chapter 1, we learned the most fundamental truth of existence. We found in the creation account three truths about God that help us to know how to relate to him and to his creation. In chapter 2, we learned about man, that we were made in God's image and that we were made for the purpose of mediating his goodness, which he's lavished on us, to the entire creation. But then in chapter 3, we learned about the entrance of evil into the world and of the fact that instead of spreading God's goodness to the world, our first parent's sin led to an existence of groaning under difficulty and pain for us and for the creation. But there was a silver lining there in chapter 3. God made a promise about an ultimate salvation through Messiah. And although the plight to which God was consigning our first parents must have devastated them, we saw clear indications that Adam and Eve were responding with hope and faith in God's promise. So, although we've caught a glimpse of the origin and reality of evil and its effects in the world, at the close of chapter 3, things seem not to be nearly as bad as they might have been. Adam and Eve had experienced spiritual death, but they had quickly been restored to God, and they had been covered by his provision even before he put them out of the garden. The only two people alive had sinned, but they were clearly on the path of faithfulness as the scripture transitions from chapter 3 into chapter 4. And so, while Genesis 3 gives us a glimpse into the arrival of evil in the world, really it's limited to the eating of a forbidden fruit, followed by God-given repentance and faith. So if this were all we had to understand the existence of evil in the world, then it might still be kind of hard to understand the extreme kinds of evil seen throughout history and even all around us. Things like war, things like the slaughters of innocent babies by evil men like Pharaoh and Herod. Things like the carnage of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the unspeakable horrors of the Holocaust, the disregard of human life and the hatred that has fueled these and other realities like chattel slavery and other forms of human trafficking and genocides in places like Rwanda and Armenia. What explains the worst unspeakable horrors of our existence? Our text for this morning, the first section of Genesis 4, offers an uncomfortable answer to these questions. And in doing so, it serves as a warning to each one of us. What we will see as we study these verses is that the way to the worst kind of sin imaginable is one of startling ease. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, and please stand with me and follow along as I read the first eight verses. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child, even Yahweh. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh out of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, 
and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The Lord has spoken. You may be seated. If you would please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the depth and the breadth of your word, for the fact that every word is inspired. Father, that it does answer the deepest and hardest questions that we could ask. And Father, we ask for your grace now as we dive into this text. Help us to accept the things that we see here and, Father, to let the light from your word shine on our hearts. And, Father, to chase the darkness away, chase away what's, what uh, lurks in there that seeks to destroy us. Father, we pray that you'd be glorified in this, Lord, again, that you would help us, and, Lord, that we would have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, as we undertake this study. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we find in these verses, as I said a moment ago, is that the way to the worst kinds of sin is one of startling ease. And as we study our text, we're going to see this in three parts. I've broken this down, the warning we receive here, I've broken down into three easy steps. And you'll see that these are three easy steps that will take you to a place you do not want to go. These are the three steps that will lead a person ultimately to the worst kinds of evil. Step one, receive the gift of life. Step two, return the offering of worship. And step three, refuse the way of escape. Now the truth is, as it's presented here, that the way to heinous sin is one of such ease that it starts with a step of complete passiveness. Step one is something we all experience. Step number one, receive the gift of life. Verse one, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child, even Yahweh. Now there's a few things going on here, and I'm going to get to some explanation of them in a moment, but I just want to point this out first. God is giving the good gift of life to Cain. And it should be no secret that Cain is the focus of this text. It is Cain who will soon model the descent into the worst kind of sin. But here we see God gives Cain the gift of life. And really, this is even more significant than that. Recall in chapter 3 where God had hung the hope of Adam and Eve's and thus the whole world's hopes for salvation. God put all of the world's hopes for salvation on one singular child of the woman. And as I pointed out last time, Eve's words in verse 1 of chapter 4 indicate that she is hoping in that promise, and that she is even hopeful that Cain could be the fulfillment of that promise. Now, as I said I would, I want to give a little further explanation of why I've translated the last part of verse 1 like this. I have gotten a man-child, even Yahweh. Now, the reason I translate it this way is the same reason careful exegetes from Martin Luther to John Gill to the modern Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser have done the same. This is what the original Hebrew text itself most naturally says. 
And just to give you a sense for the original text, there's a small two-letter word that just comes just before Yahweh's name here, uh, such that it could be said like this. I have gotten a man-child, eth Yahweh. Now, the word eth has two possible uses in Hebrew. It can either be a preposition, which generally means with, or most often, by far most often, and most naturally here, it's what's referred to as an object marker. And it is clearly the plainest sense in keeping with the way Moses writes to take this as an object marker so that Eve is saying, I have gotten a man-child, even Yahweh, or I have gotten a man-child who is Yahweh. Now, this isn't the most important point in the world, and it's not even the most important point in this text. Uh, for those, and this is the way most translations read, for those who prefer to take it, that Eve is saying that she has received this son with Yahweh's help, the main point of the text stays the same. But if the most straightforward reading is that Eve believes this son, this son is somehow both God and man, then the question that needs to be answered from the context is whether that could be a reasonable conclusion for Eve to have come to. In answering that question, it's good to think back to chapter 3. And as I explained from there, from verse 15, if Satan, the heavenly creature behind the serpent, if he was powerful enough to defeat Adam, which he did, then who is the only person in the experience of any of them, Adam, Eve, or the serpent, who would be powerful enough to defeat the serpent? Only Yahweh. And so it makes good exegetical sense. That is, it makes sense that this could be the understanding that Eve would have in this context. That Eve would believe that her promised seed who would defeat the serpent would be both a man, a man-child, and that he would also somehow be Yahweh himself. And so that's how her response here should be taken according to its plain sense. Now again, what you need to see from this in its context, and again, this is the case regardless of which way those words are translated, the most important thing here relative to the beginning of Cain's life is how wonderful and gracious a start this is for Cain. Yes, if Eve is hoping that her first son would be the Messiah, it soon becomes clear that she's mistaken. But think of the grace of God in what's happening here. Think of the gift of God in giving the life of Cain to Adam and Eve and to Cain. Only one chapter back, Adam and Eve had done the one thing God had said would bring them certain death. It would have been right for him to simply snuff them out for that to be all there ever was of humanity. But instead, God was patient and gracious. And God made a promise that they would not be cut off. In fact, they would still have children. And their hope of children was made identical to their hope of salvation. And so, again, this is the most important point to be made here. The event of Cain's birth is an event that reflects God's grace and kindness in all of its richness and glory. Cain's birth is a gift of life. And as such, it sets a joyous and hopeful precedent for every subsequent birth of every baby in history. Now, as if to emphasize this fact, in demonstration of God's continued goodness to Adam and Eve, we read, continuing in verse 2, again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. With the birth of Eve's second son, God's gift of life continues. There are now two seeds and not just one. And in these next words, we find that God's gift through Cain and Abel is not just limited to their existence in the world. From the last part of verse 2, we see that God also gives the benefit of Cain and Abel's fruitful labor to the world. It says this, And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
You see, not only does God give Adam and Eve sons and with them the continued hope for man's future, God also continues to do through man, through these two sons, what he had established man as his image on earth to do, to mediate his goodness to the entire world as its steward. This is a reflection of the goodness of work, the goodness of our labor, and the goodness of our enjoyment of the fruits of our labor. Even under the conditions of a fallen world, our work, together with what it produces, is a good gift for us, and it is a good gift to the world. We see this with Cain. It's evident from this text that God gifts him with fruitful productivity in his efforts to cultivate the earth in order to draw sustenance from it. And it's evident also in Abel, in his vocation as a shepherd, in fulfillment of God's earlier calling on man that he should oversee and steward God's provision of the animals. Now again, the emphasis here is on Cain. And this, somewhat paradoxically, is the first step in the descent we see in chapter 4 into the worst kind of evil entering creation. Cain receives the gift of life, not only in his existence, but also relative to his labor. This is step one for Cain on his way to committing the worst kind of sin imaginable. Continuing in verse 3, we find step number two, return the offering of worship. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, a couple of preliminary observations to make here in these verses. First, note that Cain's offering has the appearance of acceptability. It looks orthodox. It even looks faithful, the way Moses writes of it here. It's an offering, the text says, which Cain brought to Yahweh. The word translated offering is the same word used in verse 4 for Abel's offering. It's the word minha, and throughout Moses' writings, particularly when it comes to describing the priestly system later in the Pentateuch, this is the generic word for an acceptable offering. So externally, what Cain and Abel were bringing, their offerings are equally acceptable, at least in terms of what they are on the outside. And again, notice that they are both bringing their offerings to the one true God. Both Cain and Abel are bringing their offerings to Yahweh, the faithful, loyal, promise-keeping God. Now, all of that being said, we do find a slight distinction between the two. Whereas Cain simply brings an offering, the text specifies that Abel brings, and this is the best way to translate these words, Abel brings the fattest of the firstlings of his flock. And so there's a slight emphasis here on Abel bringing to Yahweh the best of the best from what he had. And this is just an initial hint of Yahweh's reason for responding as he does. And we read of this beginning in verse 4, the next part, and into verse 5. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now the word translated regard simply means that God looked on Abel's gift with favor, that he accepted Abel's offering, whereas he did not accept Cain's offering, but rather he rejected it. Now, the first question we want to ask here is this. Why does God reject Cain's offering? As I noted, both offerings are externally acceptable. Both are referred to by the same word that denotes an acceptable offering. Our next hint at an answer is this. When we read in verse 4 about Yahweh's acceptance of Abel 
and rejection of Cain, the emphasis is placed on the men rather than on their offerings. Look at this in the text. The last part of verse 4, Yahweh had regard first for Abel and then for his offering. And then again, verse 5, but for Cain first and then for his offering, he had no regard. And so the main thing in view in terms of God's acceptance or rejection is not the offering, but the man. The problem is not with Cain's offering as such. Following the emphasis on the exception or rejection of the men themselves, what we read next focuses in on what is going on in Cain's heart. The second part of verse 5. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. If you were there, you would have seen the smile that accompanied his offering shift into a frown, a scowl or a grimace that reflected in his face the anger that was in his heart. Now let's pause for a moment and think about this. What we're seeing in the narrative is that these two men are bringing their offerings to Yahweh. And recall that these are the two sons of Adam and Eve. Their parents' sin had introduced death and curse into creation. And we can be sure that for this tiny family, this family of four, they would have lived all by themselves as God's initial deposit of humanity within the world. For this little family, it must have been an oft-repeated and treasured pastime for them to recount the history of God's mercy at the fall. Adam and Eve would have told their sons how they fearfully hid from Yahweh, expecting his judgment to quickly strike them dead for their disobedience. They would have spoken of how instead God had pursued them and had drawn out their confessions. And then of how God made a promise, accompanied by his covering provision, that he would both initially and ultimately reverse the rebellion in which they had just joined with the serpent. Surely Adam and Eve would have taught their sons that Yahweh was a patient, promise-making God who is to be loved and worshipped. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that this externally is the form that their worship would take. Since Cain and Abel would have been taught these things from a young age, they both would have felt an obligation to bring their offering of worship in the form of the fruits of their labors. And so this is what they do. But again, as we're seeing, there is a difference between the two of them. And what the text is doing here is it is exposing the fact that the difference is with Cain and that it is a matter of what is going on in his heart. We see this continuing with God's words in verse 6. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? Now notice that what God mentions first is what is going on in Cain's heart, in his inner man, and then, secondly, how that is reflecting on his face, in his outer man. Yahweh knows, and he's pointing this out to Cain, that the response Cain is having is not the response of a man who is humble. Bitter rage is not the response of a man who knows he's an undeserving sinner, and is therefore so thankful for the gifts of life and fruitful, labors, fruitful labor he's received from a gracious God. Instead, this is the response of a man who is giving worship not from a thankful and self-sacrificial heart, but from a demanding heart. And when Cain didn't get what his heart was demanding, he became very angry, and his anger showed in his face. It was immediate, it was all-consuming, and it was impossible for him to hide. Now, let's take a step back for a moment and think about the big picture. Because this is the earliest revealed example of human worship in history, let's think for a moment about the overall concept of worship. 
And in order to get us thinking, I want to ask a question I think many of you probably know the answer to. How much of life is worship? All of it. All of life is worship. We were made to be worshipers, and therefore we will worship. So in reality, how many people engage in this step? Step two of our outline. How many return the offering of worship? All of us, right? Just as surely as each and every one of us receives the gift of life, it is guaranteed that each and every one of us will return worship. We were made to be worshipers. And as I noted, Cain and Abel's background is the sons of the very first family to walk the earth, as men who would have been immersed in the brief history of their parents' sin, of Yahweh's mercy, and of his promise. These factors would have informed what kind of worship Cain and Abel felt compelled to bring. And this made it so that externally, at least, these both took the form of offerings that would have been externally acceptable to God. But of course, false worship does not always look so externally orthodox. It's not always offered in God's name in a form that conforms with, externally with what makes for acceptable worship. Sometimes false worship looks obviously like idolatry, and sometimes, as here, it looks orthodox. But either way, it is the same. It is false worship that is unacceptable to God. And so, Cain's style of worship is just one version of worship that would fit into a very long list. And here's just a sampling. Worship of money, evidenced by selfishly hoarding every penny. Worship of health, evidenced by bitterness and anger over being unwell. Worship of Buddha, evidenced by sacrifices made in his temple. Worship of Allah, evidenced by daily prayers made toward Mecca. Worship of comfort, evidenced by an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself to serve others. Worship, again, of money, evidenced by religious giving with the hope that this gift will secure a large financial return. Worship of self, evidenced by an offer made in the name of the one true God, from a heart not of faith, but one full of desire to prove one's own righteousness. Friends, that last one in particular might hit close to home for some of you. And the truth is, because we all still have sin in us, it really should hit close to home for all of us. As we saw in our last sermon in Genesis 3, we all have the impulse. This started with our first parents. We all have the impulse to cover ourselves, as we saw there, with some kind of fig leaf. For Abel, although he surely knew this impulse, his offering was one of faith. Abel's offering reflected his trust in the same promise his parents had trusted before him, that Yahweh would graciously cover him ultimately, through the hoped-for Messiah. But for Cain, his offering was a fig leaf. How do we know that? Because when his purpose for it, at its root, the same purpose for every form of false worship that exists, when Cain's expectation that from his own resources he could cover himself and show himself righteous or right in comparison to his brother, when that purpose of Cain's was thwarted, his anger raged inside of him and spilled over onto his face. And of course, in this, Cain was just the first of many. We know this is the definition of idolatry, don't we? An idol is anything that we will do what? Sin to get, right? Or it's anything that we will sin if we can't have it. And that's where Cain is. Through these circumstances that explicitly model true and false worship, Cain's heart is being brought to the surface. 
And what is in that heart? Intense, idolatrous rage. This is evidence of the selfish motive behind Cain's offering in the first place. And really, this gives us all the insight we need into why Yahweh rejected Cain and his offering. The reason Yahweh rejected Cain and his offering is because Cain's heart was not right within him. However, in yet another demonstration of God's kindness and patience, he offers Cain a way out of his idolatry. God offers Cain a way of escape. Now before we get to that, let me just point out that verse 7 serves as something of a bridge from step 2 to step 3 in our outline. First, with regard to step 2, God's word to Cain in verse 7 continues to teach us about the relationship between the heart and acceptable worship. Verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now we need to follow the logic here, kind of in a reverse order. What is in Cain's heart that has caused his countenance to fall? Anger. What was the occasion for that anger? What had God done? He had rejected Cain's offering. And now God tells Cain that his countenance will be lifted up. And if that happens, we can assume then he will no longer be angry because God will have accepted his offering. And this is all conditioned, God says, on one thing. All of this will happen if Cain does well. Now, the question is, what would it mean for Cain to do well? We have to assume that this would mean he would do something like what Abel did, whose offering was looked on favorably, was accepted by Yahweh. Now, I think in this context, this is only implicit. The focus in this text, as we have seen, is on Cain and the fact that his offering was coming from a heart that wasn't right. But we can draw from the text that what was wrong in Cain's heart must be in contrast with what is right in Abel's. That is, we can infer here that Abel brought his offering by faith, whereas Cain brought his from unbelief. And thankfully, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we have what is an essentially an inspired commentary on this text that confirms this understanding. Hebrews 11, verse 4, says that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, righteous by faith. God testifying about his gifts. So why was Cain's offering rejected and why was Abel's accepted? For each one, this had everything to do with what was at the root of the heart from which the offering was being made. For Abel, that was faith. And for Cain, it was unbelief. But again, even with this evidence of Cain's unbelief, we find Yahweh here graciously coming to Cain to offer a way of escape. God's words in verse 8 personify sin, such that he refers to it like a predatory animal that wants to overpower and consume Cain. He says this to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. God has seen here the murderous rage that is coming out of Cain's heart, and he warns him. And friends, this is a warning not just for Cain. If we would not be overcome by sin, there is only one place for us to meet sin in battle. If we desire to not be destroyed by sin, we must battle sin all the way back at its roots, which is in our hearts. 
that is where idolatry springs from. And if we do not fight it there, if we do not heed God's word at the level where it contradicts our desires, then we will follow Cain to step number three. In verse eight, Cain takes his final step to the worst sin imaginable. Step number three, he refuses the way of escape. Now let's take a moment here and reflect on how easily Cain has progressed to this step. Like Abel, Cain had received the gift of life and the good and fruitful labor that had come with that life. And then, like Abel, he had returned an offering of worship that was in the right form externally to be acceptable to God. But then, when Cain did not get what he wanted, he started to show what was in his heart. And when he was confronted, when he was shown that his heart was wrong, instead of responding with humility, with contrition, with confession, with repentance, what we find next is that Cain's anger takes control of him. The text is very abrupt in getting us to the ultimate outflow of Cain's anger. Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother. I think the abruptness in the words here probably just reflects Cain's abruptness. Luke 6, verse 45 says that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And of course, our actions flow from that same heart. So we can infer here that Cain first let loose angry words directed at Abel. And then, as we continue to read, it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Now there are some details here that are worth pondering. I haven't pointed this out yet, but let me point it out now. The word brother is repeated seven times, starting in verse 2. And four of those times, it's an unnecessary word. That is, four of those seven times, the word brother is provided in addition to Abel's name. Why is there such intentionality to repeat this particular word so many times? The reason is this. Cain doesn't just murder another man. He murders his own brother. And think of it this way, at least as far as the text tells us, Abel was one of only four people in existence. Cain murdered his own brother, and when he did, he murdered one-fourth of the whole world's population. And so, what would God have us take from this? That Cain has descended at breathtaking speed from worship that looked right on the outside to perpetrating this ultimate kind of evil. And there's another detail that indicates this, besides the emphasis on Cain's having killed his own brother. Look again at verse 8. After Cain told Abel his brother, the text says, he rose up against Abel his brother. This is the language of premeditation. We find these same words in Deuteronomy 19, verse 11, where Moses records the penalty for murder. And specifically, the description there has to do with murder that is premeditated. And it's almost inescapable because of the similarity in wording that Cain's murder of Abel actually forms the background of this statute. Moses writes there, Deuteronomy 19, verse 11, But if there is a man who hates his brother and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies... This is the sequence of premeditated murder, of murder in cold blood, which is especially heinous to God. Having first hated his neighbor, or in this case his brother, he rises up against him 
and kills him. And so, in both of these ways, with the repetition of the word brother and with the language of premeditation, what we're supposed to take away from this is that Cain has descended into the worst kind of evil. Now again, consider the big picture. Whereas we saw with Adam and Eve the first sin and its consequences, and then the faith-filled response they had as they were introduced to life in a fallen world, but with God's promises. Here we see the explanation of the worst of the worst that is part of our reality. To put it another way, this finishes the explanation of how you get from God's beautiful paradise to murderous pharaohs and Herods and Hitlers. This explains that the human heart is capable of becoming so consumed with its own overpowering desires that it is all too willing to consume and destroy not just another person, but one's own brother. And as we've seen from the text, this was the case for for Cain, and he's something of a paradigm for all future unrepentant sinners. For Cain, this was a matter of three simple steps the first two of which are a given for every single one of us. Cain, like all of us, received the gift of life and returned the offering of worship. And then, when the unbelief behind his worship was confronted, Cain refused the way of escape and instead chose willingly to be overcome by the worst sin imaginable. Now, before we finish, I want to pull some application from all of this in two different ways. First, If you clearly find yourself standing at Cain's crossroads, if God is pointing out to you this morning that he is offering you a gracious choice, if he's telling you that although you have received his good gift of life, you have up until now returned only false worship, and if he is showing you through the story of Cain what the ultimate outcome of that false worship will be if you don't turn away from it, what would God have you do? Friend, heed the warning of Cain. If you do well, if you repent of your unbelief, if you will confess your own corruption and wrongness, if you will confess the futility of anything and everything you have to offer from your own strength, if you will confess that God would be right to condemn you and your false worship, whatever form it takes, and if you will in turn with all your heart to trust in his promises, already so much fulfilled in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, then the God who is gracious, who has given us these words of warning, he will have mercy on you. He will lift your countenance. He will give you his joy and his peace, his righteousness, his life, his goodness. He will give you a heart to worship, and he will regard your worship. He will accept it with gladness and he will fill your heart with that same gladness for all eternity. Friends, Cain had a choice and you do too. You do not have to go where your heart is leading you. If you are hearing these words, the choice is before you and unlike Cain, I call you to repent. Secondly, for those of us who might find it a little bit harder to identify with Cain, And I present it this way not to condemn us, but to wake us up and to spur us on to excel in God's ways. For those of us who have been given the heart of true worship and have responded the way Adam and Eve responded by faith in God's promised Messiah, this text has a challenging message for us 
also. And it is one that the Apostle John draws for the believers to whom he writes in his first epistle. This comes from the text we read earlier at the start of the service, 1 John chapter 3. John writes this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him. Now, to drive home the challenge John is drawing here from Cain's example, I want to tell you about a man who it's quite possible perhaps nobody in this room has ever heard of. A man by the name of R.C. Chapman, also known as Robert Chapman. Chapman was a 19th century Englishman who was both a personal friend and a living hero of the faith to such men as Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, John Nelson Darby, and Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said of him, Robert Chapman was the saintliest man I ever knew. John Nelson Darby, who famously disagreed with Chapman on eschatology, nonetheless said of him, We talk of the heavenlies, but Robert Chapman lives them. He lives what I teach. George Mueller learned his famous ministry model, prayerfully trusting the Lord for provision on a shoestring budget. That was a model he learned from Chapman. So why is it that so few of us know of R.C. Chapman? Because he wanted it that way. Chapman refused many offers to be published, preferring instead the anonymity of a busy but modest ministry. Chapman's life, like Cain's, started out auspiciously enough. He was born into a wealthy family in England, and although his family lost much of their wealth late in his youth, R.C. worked hard, became a successful lawyer, and then a wealthy heir in his early 20s. Part of the high society of London, he appeared to have it all. But, as he would later recount, although he was a moral man on the outside, inside he felt empty and purposeless. Although he, oh, I'm sorry, he felt empty and purposeless on the inside. One day, a friend invited R.C. to church, where he heard the gospel. Unlike Cain, hearing about his sinfulness and his need to repent, rather than repelling him, drew him to the Lord, and he was soundly converted. Although he continued successfully in his legal career over the next couple of years, he began sensing an undeniable calling to ministry. When friends first heard him preach, their feedback was that he would never be a great preacher. His response? There are many who preach Christ, but not so many who live Christ. My great aim will be to live Christ. And that is exactly what he did. At the age of 29, the wealthy Chapman sold all of his assets, keeping just enough to buy a house near the pastorate he took. And for the next 70 years, he lived to the age of 99, single his whole life. For the next 70 years, Chapman quietly and humbly loved people. Known by many as the Apostle of Love, he would occasionally receive mail marked this way, R.C. Chapman, University of Love, England. And that mail would get to him. 
Among the many anecdotes testifying to his selfless love, perhaps the most frequently referenced was his habit of washing the shoes or the boots of each one of the guests in his house before they woke up in the morning. If they objected to this gesture, he was known to respond this way. It is not the custom in our day to wash one another's feet. That which most nearly corresponds to this command of the Lord is to clean each other's boots. Chapman lived a life that was so much opposite Cain's. His life spoke famously of love as he gave what he had of the world's goods wherever he saw a need among his brothers and sisters. As he loved, not just in word and in tongue, but consistently in deed and in truth. I reflected on these things this past week, and as I read up on Robert Chapman, I couldn't help but be convicted. I too, as is the case with each of us, I too have been given the gift of life. I too have returned the offering of worship. And I too have had sinful unbelief pointed out in my heart. And this applies to each of us, whether you're at Cain's crossroads if you are, or, or if you are enduring imperfectly, but diligently in the way of faithfulness. The Lord is sometimes kind to point out to me unbelief in my own heart, even at times when the worship on the outside looks right. He is kind to show me that rather than serving him, my heart is inclined to other gods. Gods of comfort, gods of convenience, gods of appearance, of reputation, of being proven right in the sight of others. And the Apostle John's challenge in light of Cain's life that we must love one another in ways that have been put on display by men like R.C. Chapman, this is a challenge and a rebuke to my sometimes unbelieving and comfort-seeking heart. Beloved, if we are confronted this morning with an element of unbelief and a corresponding lack of love and self-sacrifice in our hearts, may we, unlike Cain, turn once again towards God's words and in response to them. Having caught even just a glimpse of the incalculable vastness of the love and goodness of God in Christ towards us, may we, by his grace, overcome sin at the level of our hearts so that we would love freely and generously and self-sacrificially to the glory of God's name among his people. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this hard warning on this text. And Father, from the hard challenge that John brings to us as he reflects on this text, Father, would you cultivate in your people a heart of love? And Father, would you give to anyone here who has not yet received one a heart of true worship, a heart that is willing to surrender everything that the world has to offer, everything that the fleshly heart demands, and to give you the glory that you deserve and that will be our great joy to give to you for all eternity. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.